Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, rip, ruin, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. Man, I'm rip-roaring and ready to go. Welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Before I go ahead and start talking about the NBA Finals, before I start talking about the situation headed forward in the NBA Finals with the Boston Celtics and the Golden State Warriors and what does the injury to Steph Curry mean and can the Warriors come back and win this game or win the series and what is Game 4 entail speaking about on Friday? And what about the Boston Celtics and them going forward to try to win their first championship in a little while? And then after the break, talking about the Deshaun Watson situation, 66 women and 17 months to do a massage, really? Speaking about Darvin Ham being the new head coach of the L.A. Lakers, speaking about Quinn Snyder leaving the Utah Jazz. What did that mean for Donovan Mitchell? What did that mean for the core group, mainly Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert? What did that relationship mean now that Quinn Snyder is no longer the head coach? I will get into all of those things. But before I do, I want to say special dedication. Thank you so doggone much for those who have been watching this episode, have been watching my episode on my YouTube channel. If you could just go ahead and subscribe to my channel if you could just go ahead if you enjoy this episode go ahead and push that like button would have very much appreciated and if you're listening to my podcast whether it be on apple or spotify or amazon or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast if you could just go ahead if you could download if you could subscribe if you could follow if you could rate and review and most importantly enjoy the most Unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to. Man, I would very much appreciate it. So thank you so, so very much from the shores of Los Angeles, California, all up to the San Francisco Bay, all up to the Pacific Northwest, all across the country here in America, going to the east, flying over to London, going over to Italy, flying back over to Paleorean fans, talking about what's happening in Dubai, of course, in Australia, all over the globe, man. Thank you so much for either listening or watching Wendell's World of Sports. Very much appreciated. All right. Let's go ahead, man, and start talking about these NBA Finals, shall we? The first three games of the NBA Finals, the Boston Celtics take a 2-1 series lead after the first three games. Now, I was out of town, went east to see my beautiful goddaughter and my brother and my mother, so didn't have the opportunity to go ahead and get into depth in terms of doing a podcast about games one and two, but, you know, this is a situation where, again, after three games, Boston takes a 2-1 to series lead after their 116-100 victory. Wednesday night, or if you watch the game in Hawaii, it was Wednesday afternoon, or if you watch the game somewhere in Australia, it was Thursday morning. Anywhere where you watch the game, Game 3, Boston Celtics taking down the Golden State Warriors, 116-100, Jalen Brown scored 27 points, Jason Tatum added 26, Marcus Smart, 
chipped in with 24 points. Robert Williams being a beast, having another impactful overall game in limited minutes because of the knee injury, 26 minutes played. In games three, scored eight points on four or five shooting, 10 rebounds, four block shots, and a team best plus 21 plus minus. The Celtics outscored the Warriors 23 to 11 in the fourth to put the game away after losing an 18 point lead in the first half and then being up 12 at halftime. The Warriors came out, outscored the Celtics. 33-25 in the third quarter, taking, took an 83-82 lead with about 3.45 left to go in the quarter. Steph Curry was doing the thing, and really, this has been a situation with the Boston Celtics all season long, right? All playoff season long, right? I mean, this is a situation where just when you think the Boston Celtics are going to fold, just when you think the Boston Celtics have control of the series, just when you think that the Boston Celtics have control of the game, turnovers, bad decisions, poor decisions. The other team comes back, it gets a little bit dicey, it gets a little bit tense, it gets a little bit, uh, it gets a little bit scarred for those who are rooting for the Celtics. But what happens? It's a situation where Boston Celtics, who didn't have this type of mental toughness and fortitude early in the season, in which head coach Yamiki Udoka was getting on those guys time and time again, but they showed their mettle, they showed their confidence, they showed their maturity, they showed their uh, uh, fabric in terms of having the toughness and having the mental toughness to get through the storm, which was Steph Curry reigning threes and Clay Thompson regaining his form for at least one game to uh, kind of settle down. And then in the fourth quarter, as I mentioned before, I'll score the Warriors 23-11 to put the game away. And still, not a vintage effort yet from Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum through these series uh, through the first three games of the series has been very very good even though he's not shooting well even though he's not might be not be scoring as much as a quote-unquote superstar that you would expect would be scoring if we're speaking about putting a real imprint on the series if we're speaking about Jason Tatum at his age and what he needs to do and where his trajectory is as far as being an NBA superstar and far as being a guy who's going to be one of the faces of the league as far as being one of the best players in the league for the foreseeable future, putting that stamp, putting that elevation to his game. He hasn't had that awe-inspiring game yet. He hasn't had that Giannis Adenikupo game six yet. He hasn't even had the Jason Tatum of game six in the Eastern Conference second round against the Milwaukee Bucks yet. But he's been playing very, very well. But it was a situation where, hey, man, for the fourth quarter, I was texting uh, Jerome and I was texting some of my friends and I was speaking about, hey man, if the Boston Celtics are going to win this game because they were up by four going into the fourth quarter and it seemed like Steph was going to continue his hot streak and putting the Golden State Warriors on his back and delivering them from a loss to a uh, to the uh, to the finish line. I was going to have to say, I was texting, I was saying, look man, Jason Taylor's going to have to do something. There were too many stretches in the third quarter where I forgot Jason Taylor was on the floor. This is a guy right now, top five player in the NBA, first team All-NBA or second team All-NBA. I mean, this is his time right now. This is going to be his opportunity right now. This is going to be his chance right now to uh, have that uh, game that when we're speaking about the greatness of Jason Tatum and we look back and say, where did the... Where did the beginning, where did the origins of Jason Tatum being one of the best players of his generation begin? We can say it started, well, first with Game 6 elimination game against the defending champions and the best player on the planet at that time, Giannis Antetokounmpo, against the Milwaukee Bucks on the road. But then 
We're speaking about the vintage Game 4 fourth quarter performance that he gave in Game 3 to ward off Steph Curry, one of the greatest players of his generation and one of the greatest players of all time. And what are the, speaking about the Golden State Warriors, the dynasty that they, that they have and that they're trying to recapture, that the Boston Celtics and Jason Tatum leading the charge with the one that kind of thwarted the comeback attempt by the Golden State Warriors and led them to their first championship, the first uh, few championships in the era of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart and Robert Williams and Grant Williams and and and, and, and that type of and and, and, and Coach Yudoka uh, at the coach. I mean, this could have been the signature going into the fourth quarter of Game Two, where. 10, 12, 15 years down the road when we're talking about the greatness of Jason Tatum and we're speaking about possibly a mini-dynasty for the Boston Celtics, boom! This could have been the quarter. It didn't happen for Jason Tatum. Was he impactful? Yes. Was he important? Yes. Did he play a role in the Celtics crushing the comeback attempt by the Warriors by being part of the Celtic defense that held the Warriors to 11 points, that held Steph Curry, that held... Clay Thompson at hell, Jordan Poole at hell, Draymond Green at hell, Georgetown's own Otto Porter that helped that team, helped that unit, helped that squad to 11 points in the fourth quarter for a definitive win in Game 3 by 16. Steve Kerr calling off the troops, waving the white flag with about two minutes left to go. Um, Yeah, you would have thought that Jason Taylor would have been the main man, but he wasn't. But he wasn't. It was a team effort by the Boston Celtics, as I mentioned before. You have uh, Derek White coming in and putting his imprint on the game as far as the intangibles and defense is concerned. You have Marcus Smart coming back from a putrid Game 2 performance where I only think he had one field goal, and he came in and he played well. Again, Robert Williams with the impact that he had despite the leg injury and despite the limited minutes that Coach Yudoka gave him. Um, Jason uh, Tatum doing his thing, but not having that superstar imprint, but yet being very effective and very impactful. Jalen Brown, a guy who we've been looking to be that Robin to Jason Tatum's Batman, assumed the role of Batman, especially in the first half, and set and set the tone for what the uh, Celtics were going to do for most of the game. And when... You finally, if you're a Golden State Warrior fan and you're looking at the glass half empty, or excuse me, half full, and you're speaking about Curry scoring 31 for the game on 12 of 22 shooting, when you're thinking about the backcourt of Curry and Clay Thompson having good shooting games, Thompson for the first time in the series having himself a good game, scoring 25 points on 7 of 17 shooting and three of excuse me, and five of 13 from the three-point line. You would think to yourself, all right, we've got something going on here. But the only thing that the Celtics and the Warriors, when you're speaking about the series, have is a 2 to one series lead. And I think in a situation where we can do the same thing concerning the Boston Celtics, not only with the Miami Heat, but now with the Golden State Warriors, that if they don't turn the ball over, if they don't make things hard on themselves, if they can just cut down on the stupid decisions that they make, the Boston Celtics, especially now with home court advantage, should win this championship. Now you're speaking about game four tomorrow night, Friday night being highly important. I mean, I would have to kind of say, even as great as the Golden State Warriors are, even with the championship pedigree that the Golden State Warriors have, the Boston Celtics win game four, the series is over. 
I believe that the Celtics are going to win this series in six games, if that's the case. And we don't even know what the ramifications of the Stephen Curry injury is. I mean, how much are we going to be speaking about? How, what, what, what percentage is Stephen Curry going to be playing with now that he has an injured knee? Is he going to be playing at uh, 82%? Is he going to be playing at 76.4873256%? What type of percentage is Stephen Curry going to be at? And when you're speaking about a guy, especially on the offensive end, that's been as important as Curry has been, averaging 30 points a game through three games of the series, shooting almost 50% from the three-point line, can Golden State overcome this injury if, you know, Curry is going to be hampered a little bit. If you're thinking about uh, players who are going to be stepping up, Clay Thompson right now is outside of game three shooting 10 of 33 from the field at 30% and a three, excuse me, four of 15 from the three-point range. So that's 26%, and he's only averaging 13 points moving forward. He had a very good third quarter as such, but when the Warriors needed him to do something in the fourth, Clay wasn't there to repeat the performance that he had in the third quarter. Moving forward now, if we're going to be asking Clay to put up more shots, if we're going to be asking Clay to assume more responsibility of the offense because Clay is not, excuse me, because of Steph Curry not being at the percentage that he needs to be to resume the role and the level of play that he was playing with before he got injured late in the fourth quarter of uh, last night's game three against the Celtics. What what did that mean now for the Warriors? What did that mean now for Klay Thompson? What did that mean now for Draymond Green, who had been playing like absolute and his worst shit or doo-doo for the first three games? And what did that mean now if you're speaking about the other guys that are going to have to be stepping up? Andrew Wiggins! Starter in the All-Star game. Hello. You got to give us a little bit more than that. There were situations, there were times in this game that I forgot that Andrew Wiggins was on the floor, reminiscent of his days when he was playing with the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves. Jordan Poole, where are you? This guy who was considered one of the uh, front runners for comeback or, you know, most improved player. And the story was fantastic and he worked so hard. And this was going to be a guy who was going to be able to blend in comfortably. This was going to be a guy who was ultimately going to be taking minutes away during crunch time, during important times of important games from Clay Thompson. Where had that Jordan Poole been? Because outside of a half-court, near-half-court shot at the end of the third quarter in game two of the series, Jordan Poole hasn't been seen. Jordan Poole's impact hasn't been felt. Who else on this roster for Golden State are you going to be counting on if Steph Curry is not going to be able to give you the type of level of performance that he's been giving you so far in these NBA Finals? I mean, Green and Klay Thompson should be the first two because they have the rings, but how effective are they going to be from the overall standpoint of things, not just from the offensive end, not just from scoring points, but from the other things that they can that they can bring. How effective can Draymond Green be if Boston isn't falling for his Dennis Rodman type antics on the floor? Game two, the the um, Boston Celtics were mentally punked, and they were mentally punked by one guy. And that goes from the coaching staff all the way down to the 12th man on the bench for the Boston Celtics. Draymond Green punked that entire team and coaching staff in game two. He did the uh, old Dennis Rodman, what he did in one of the uh, uh, conference finals against the Miami Heat, where he was so much into the head of 
uh, Alonzo Mourning, I don't think that man at the end of the uh, series could be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. He's still probably having Dennis nightmares fucking with him and his dreams. Dennis, uh, excuse me, Draymond Green was doing his best Dennis Rodman antics to get him to the, get into the mind, get into the psyche of the Boston Celtics. But if the Celtics have truly said, you know what, we're going to go ahead and we're going to play our game and we're not going to fall for that bullshit. If you're Draymond Green, what what else is there for you to give, especially when you're speaking about on the offensive end? It was a situation where if, the, if you go back to where the Jordan Chicago Bulls finally go got over the hump and started winning their championships and started building their dynasty and started, um, you know, uh, doing their thing as far as winning championships and being one of the greatest teams of all time with MJ and Pippen and Horace Grant and Bill Wennington and uh, Bill Cartwright and those guys and then switching over the second time around to get Rodman and, and, those, and the rest of those guys. Well, it all started, it all started with finally conquering the Detroit Pistons and a situation where, yeah, for a few years, the Chicago Bulls were either just as good or better than the Bill Lambeer, Isaiah Thomas, Vinnie Johnson, Joe Dumars, Buddha Edwards, John Sally, uh, Dennis Rodman-led Detroit Pistons, but they had the championship experience. So they knew how to mess with people, especially if you're speaking about Scottie Pippen. So they knew how to uh, mess with those guys. When the Chicago Bulls finally said, enough, and started um, ignoring the antics and ignoring some of the cheap shots and ignoring some of the things that they tried, that the Detroit Pistons tried to do to get into their head and throw them off their game. Detroit then knew that, you know what? Our two-year dynasty of winning championships, it is all over. Because if they ain't falling for that, we ain't got nothing else. Because we can't match up with Jordan. We can't match up with Pippen. We can't match up with Grant. We can't match up with Pip, uh, John uh, Paxson. We can't match up with Craig Hodges. We can't match up, match up with those guys. We're done. We're finished. We're through. If that's going to be a situation now with Draymond, all of a sudden now, you take a look at Draymond and you take a look at Game 3 where he fouled out in the 35 minutes, scored two points, a 1-4 of four shooting, four rebounds, three assists, and had a negative 13 on the plus-minus. So far, the series, when you have Draymond averaging five points per game, has not made a three-pointer, has 20 rebounds and 15 assists combined for the entire series. The only thing that he's doing... The only thing that he's doing and making an imprint is playing pretty good defense and such, but his main contribution has been fucking mentally with the Boston Celtics. If they can put that nonsense out of their head, what does Draymond give, especially when you're speaking about, again, he's going to have to step up. He's going to have to do something offensively other than, um, you know, initiate the offense and try to throw passes and set back screens and, and that type of thing to try to get Clay and try to get uh, Stephen Curry open. He's going to have to do some more things, a.k.a. shooting the basketball and making baskets. We're not asking him to all of a sudden start shooting threes or taking men men off the dribble and, and isos or something like that, but he's got to be a little bit more aggressive when you're speaking about um, scoring the basketball. If because of the injury to Steph, Instead of him having 32, 35, 40 points in the game to keep them afloat and give them the opportunity to win the game, is Stefan not going to be that guy? And the best that he can give you is 23 to 26 to 27 points somewhere down the road, somewhere within that equation for the Golden State Warriors. Draymond or somebody's going to have to take up the slack. And we don't know with the inconsistencies of Kyle, uh, with a Clay Thompson shooting. 
we don't know if you can be uh, thrust the thrust upon the example or the assignment or the responsibility of doing that. So it's going to have to come down to guys like Jordan Poole. It's going to have to come down to guys like uh, Draymond Green. It's going to have to come down to guys like Andrew Wiggins. It's going to have to come down to those guys because this is a situation where, hey, man, you know, um, if you're Golden State and you really believe the only way that the Celtics can lose this series is to turn the ball over, as we've seen throughout these playoffs, the fact that when the Boston Celtics don't turn the ball over, they win, regardless of who they're playing. When they get sloppy with the basketball, when they have a lot of turnovers, when they're not mentally prepared to play, they are easily beatable. So if the Celtics can keep their consciousness at the level of we're going to be playing at a consistent high level, cutting down on the turnovers and ignoring some of the antics and some of the other things that are just designed to screw with us, then if you're the Golden State Warriors, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, we have a situation here where, you know what, Boston finally gets it. Jason Tatum and and, uh, Marcus Smart and Al Horford and um, Jalen Brown, they, they finally get it. And now we're in trouble because now mentally we can't fuck with them no more because now it's going to be a situation where Draymond is going to be the guy where his antics and everything that he did in game two worked in that situation. All of a sudden now, he's going to try to spend more time trying to get Jason Tatum off his game mentally, Jalen Brown off his game mentally. And in the meantime, he's going to be the one that's going to be suffering. He's going to be the one that's not going to be focusing on what he can do to elevate his game. He's going to be more focused on what do I need to do to try to have Jason Tatum or Marcus Smart or Al Horford or Peyton Pritchard or one of these guys try to lose their cool. And if that happens, the series should be over and Boston should win. As I mentioned before, man, this is the situation where you're speaking about the Celtics, man. We still haven't gotten ourselves a vintage performance from Jason Tatum. First three games of the series, shooting 33% from the field on 59 uh, field goal attempts, averaging 22 points per game. And okay, nice, fine. And as I mentioned before, he's been a very good uh, floor leader. He's been a very good guy in making the right pass, making the right play. He's done that. But I'm still waiting for Jason Tatum to explode. I'm still waiting for Jason Tatum to have that memorable game. I'm still waiting. And maybe it'll be the pl- closeout game. I'm still waiting for Jason Tatum to announce very loudly that he has arrived as one of the best players in the game. Not future best players in the game. Not one of the best players under the age of 25. I'm talking about Jason Tatum's time being now. And what he's going to have to do somewhere in game four or game five or game six, especially if we're speaking about game four. Most of the time when you're speaking about a series this close between the Warriors and the Celtics in terms of just their team makeup and just in terms of what was anticipated from the pundits once the NBA Finals started. A lot of time when the team goes up 3-1, that especially if you're speaking about the road team, that most of the time they kind of mail it in for Game 5, the desperation of the other team knowing that this might be the best, the last uh, time that they'll be playing on their home court goes out and lays a uh, hand grenade on those guys to blows up the scene in terms of their effort and their intensity and their desperation to get that victory to make a 3-2. Now you start to get into a situation where it's a little bit less snug than what it was before. And maybe some doubt creeps in. And as long as these, and the longer the, the series goes, the more situations of injury or bad refereeing or whatever could happen. So if you're 3-2, then going back to 
the going back to the confines of your home court and your home arena in the place that you live during the time of the NBA season, you get back to the creatures and comforts of your own home. One of the advantages that you know your um, rims and you know the lighting and you know the arena better than everybody, then again, that swings the momentum back over to the team that's up 3-2 after taking a 3-1 lead, and then they finish the job. Speak about some examples of that if you're speaking about the 1987 finals between the Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers were up 2-1 to one in game uh, after game three. Magic Johnson made the junior sky hook to put them up 3-1 to one after Larry Bird missed a, fourth, uh, missed a uh, left side corner three. The Celtics absolutely blew out the Lakers in game five before the Lakers went home and won their Magic's fourth championship Um against the Celtics or in this in his NBA career at the time. And also you're speaking about the 1986 NBA playoffs with the Boston Celtics when they were playing the Houston Rockets after the Celtics got up 3-1, despite the fact that the Rockets were playing without Ralph Sampson after the first quarter because he decided at 7 feet 4 that he was going to sucker punch and get into a brawl with Jerry Seasting, all 5 foot 11 of them. But because of the desperation, because of the anger, because of the moment that was needed for Houston, the Rockets at that time, to have themselves a huge performance, that's exactly what they did. Boston, Larry Bird, Bill Walton, Robert Paris, Dennis Johnson, Scott Wedman, Danny Ainge, and those guys finally figured out, finally closed it at home in Game 6. So... For me, for the Boston Celtics, man, we got ourselves a situation where if they win game four, they're going to win this series in six. If the Golden State Warriors somehow, some way, find a way to win this game, and now we're taking a look at it being a best of three series with two of the games being in San Francisco, despite all the, all the good things that the Boston Celtics have done on the road this season and all the times that they've come back and all the heroic performances that they've gotten, um, this was a situation, man. If you're 2-2 and you're going to be playing two of the next three games against a championship-caliber team like the Warriors in terms of them having Clay and Steph and Draymond on there, now, nah, man, we're going to go ahead and we're going to put the finishing t- touches on this series, and we're going to have to have the same type of fear. We're going to have to have the same type of anxiety. We're going to have to have the same type of um, of, of, of just, you know, we, we, we've got to get this done that the Golden State Warriors are going to have on Friday night. So we'll we'll basically see what happens. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So mentioned before, Game 3, Game 1 was an interesting game, man. Game 1 was really interesting because I had to catch my flight that night. So when I left to go to the airport in Game 1, I believe early in the 4th or late in the 3rd, the Celtics were up by eleven. So when I finally got the information, when I finally got the news, when I finally heard the news that the Boston Celtics had won, and they won by a score of 120 to 108, I was like, what? Going home, watching the highlights of those games, watching the replay of the game, I could see how um, it was a situation where they put that many points and dominated the fourth quarter like they did with all the open looks that Al Horford and Marcus Smart and those guys were getting off of a porous um, 
uh, Golden State Warriors defense at that time. It's almost like Game 2 corrected itself, and now we have Game 3 where the Celtics flex their muscles, flex their versatility, and uh, got the job done like my man Big Daddy Kane. So, um, you know, moving into Game 4, who again, how well is Curry going to be? He, no MRI today. How much of an impact is this injury going to have? Who's going to be that guy? What adjustments can Steve Kerr make? Is it time to uh, push the panic button to start playing guys like uh, Moody and Jonathan Kaminga? I mean, are we going to see a little bit more time from Andre Iguodala? What are we going to be doing about some of the matchups? Are we going to get in? Are we going to have a Kevin Looney sighting? Are we going to have an Andre, an Andrew Wiggins sighting? What is going to be the strategy? for the Golden State Warriors going into Game 4 of these NBA Finals. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So I'd like to see that the ratings are up for these games. I'd like to see that, uh, you know, they have been some entertaining yet intriguing games. No down to the wider stuff, but yet still there's been pretty compelling games so far. You're speaking about Games 1, 2, and 3, but everything is going to be uh, centered on game four and exactly what are the Boston Celtics going to do? What are the um, Golden State Warriors going to do to, uh, you know, try to uh, even the series if you're Miami or put the series in a kibosh mode if you're the Boston Celtics? So the Celtics up two to one, the Celtics more versatile, the Celtics younger, the Celtics more athletic. The Celtics, more ways to score. Love the love the strategy that the Celtics had in terms of, you know, having Jason Tatum. When he gets Steph Curry on him, it doesn't matter where he is out on the perimeter. He's going to uh, go ahead and do his thing. And as much as Tatum has been settling for jumpers, or maybe not putting his imprint, not putting his aggressiveness on shooting and trying to score the basketball, I mean, this is a situation where Jason Tatum at six feet seven gets himself a mouse in the house, six foot three inch, six foot three inch Steph Curry or something like that. He's attacking the rim. And he's attacking the rim. He's not getting near the rim and trying to do some fancy do dip to roo or pass it back out or pass it between his legs or none of that nonsense. He's going up and he's going up there to score. He is going up there to be aggressive. And in game three, that's exactly what he does. So hey man, you know. Kudos to the Boston Celtics. The Golden State Warriors have a lot of work to do. They Can they get it done? Dream, Draymond Green has a lot of soul searching. I'm quite sure he's going to be coming out there like a bat out of hell. Can Clay Thompson, just for a little bit, give us the same shooting stroke and performance that he did in Game 3? Can he carry that over to Game 4? Maybe Game 4 in the fourth quarter. Maybe Game 4 when the Warriors are under running. We need a 3 or we need a play to uh, really put the nail in the coffin. That's the time when Clay can show up and get it done because despite the fact that his shooting has been poorest in the finals, both from the three-point line and overall, everybody has respect for Steph Curry and Clay Thompson to know that when those guys get the ball and they square up and they look to aim, shoot, and fire, that you better have somebody to put a hair in their face and to rough them up a little bit or else it's going to be a long, long night, even if you're speaking about the greatness of a Tom Brady, if you're the, if you're, uh, excuse me, of uh, some of these guys. So 
you know, it's going to be, how did they get Tom Brady? I don't know. So it's an interesting move. It's an interesting um, series so far. And uh, I think, again, the Boston Celtics are the better team, waiting for that vintage performance from Tatum. What are we going to get now from Draymond Green and from Gordon Poole and some of the rest of these role players for the Golden State Warriors to help out Steph, who suffered an ankle injury and a late uh, scrum for the basketball in the fourth quarter of Game 3. No MRI needed. He's going to just gut it out and play. So what is going to be the impact of that? What is going to have the impact on his team? Discussed it with you, but uh, moving forward for Game 4, up to now, the most important, really, for Jason Tatum and those guys, this is going to be the most important game of their careers. If you really think about it and what it all entails or what it means, are the Celtics going to be mature enough? Are the Celtics going to be level-headed enough? Are the Celtics going to be there to uh, get it done? It'll be interesting moving forward. If truly, yes, the Celtics can finally put the final nail in the Golden State Warriors dynasty coffin, Resume, assume the belt of dynasty right now, and for the Celtics, winning this game would go a lot, lot way, uh, go a lot longer for that. In terms of, hey man, we got ourselves a dynasty going, and now let's put the finishing touches on it and let's make it happen. <laughs> Last segment of the podcast, last segment of the program, Wendell's World of Sports, so glad that you could be with us, Wendell Wallace, I'd like to thank everybody who's been watching on YouTube, I'd like to thank everybody who has been listening wherever they listen to their favorite podcast, remember always download, subscribe, rate, review, and most importantly, enjoy the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to, and of course, if you're watching this video on YouTube or this episode on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe to my channel, Wendell's World and Sports, and also go ahead and like the video. Very much appreciated. I am I am recording this on a Thursday afternoon, as I mentioned before. So as you can say, I'm playing catch up, so I'm gonna try to put a little mustard into this last segment and relish every opportunity I get to speak sports and what's going on. And maybe if I can just add a few more jokes, kind of put a hot dog on some of these things that I'm talking about. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Some NFL news that I want to get into. Deshaun Watson, the story that won't go away and it's only getting worse and it's only Going to get worse. I don't know if you read what the New York Times reported on Tuesday that the that Deshaun Watson, the Cleveland Browns quarterback, booked massage appointments with at least 66 different women over a 17-month span 
from the fall of 2019 to the spring of 2021. 66 booked massage appointments, I'm sorry, massage appointments booked with at least, with at least 66 different women over 17 months. The list of 66 include the 24 women who have filed lawsuits against Watson, including two in the past week, at least 15 therapists who issued statements of support for Watson at the request of his lawyers, at least four therapists contracted uh, were contracted with the Texans, five women identified by the plaintiff's lawyers during the investigation for their civil suits, at least 15 other women whose appointment with Watson were confirmed through interviews and records retrieved by the news, and a few of these additional women spoke publicly for the first time to the time. And Watson has said publicly that he had hired about 40 different therapists across five seasons in Houston. I was watching the NFL Live uh, show, and they were speaking to uh, Teddy Bruschi, and they were speaking to Damian Woody, I believe it was, and they were speaking about, you know, what 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 do you think of the amount of women that Deshaun Watson, con- uh, you know, got in touch with and um, gave massages, booked massages with? And these guys were like, hey, man, you know, when you're speaking about the profession that we're in, when you're speaking about the NFL, when it comes to your body, when it comes to the overall maintenance of your body, that's your deal. I mean, now you can get help and you can go for, uh, you know, you can get some help with the team and get some suggestions and all those type of things. But in terms of the maintenance of your body, that's your deal. I know that the teams have a trainer and such, but when you're speaking about a therapist, when you're speaking about a nutritionist, when you're speaking about all of those things, that's a situation where, hey, man, you are in charge of your body. So you're going to try to sit there and try to tell me that Deshaun Watson, a guy who's quarterback, a guy who's going to be a franchise quarterback, a guy who's one of the top quarterbacks in the league when he's doing a thing, you're going to try to tell me that Deshaun Watson went on Instagram and went through at least 66 different women over 17 months to give him massages? Teddy Bruschi and Damon Woody were talking about, hey, look, man, you know, in terms of people being hired or me hiring people to take care of my body and maintain uh, my level of nutrition and all those type of things, I can count on one hand throughout my career. Bruski was like, I played over 10 years in the NFL. Woody was like, I played over 10 years in the NFL. And I can count on one hand how many people I had in terms of handling that side of things when it comes to body maintenance, when it comes to getting myself ready to play, when it came to just the physical attributes in terms of keeping them at a level to where I could play week in and week out at a high level, at the level that I wanted to play at on uh, for my NFL career. So he was like, it is highly, 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 highly rare that Deshaun Watson or that any football player would go through that many people or that many women or that many uh, folks who do those things in terms of giving massages and such. It's highly, 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 highly unlikely. And like I said, man, where there's there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Watson has said publicly that he hired about 40 different uh, therapists across the five seasons in Houston. One woman, one woman who did not sue Watson or complained to the police, this is what she told the uh, New York Times, that Watson was persistent in his request for sexual acts during their massage, including begging her to put her mouth on his penis. 
More than two dozen women have said Watson harassed or assaulted them during massage appointments that Watson and his lawyer insist were innocuous. Two grand juries in Texas this year declined to charge him criminally. The lawyers have acknowledged that Watson had sexual contact with three of the women who have sued him, but the sexual acts took place after the massages, they said, and were initiated by the women. So this is a situation where I get that the uh, lawyer... Rusty Hart is making the situation and making the uh, making the um, claim that uh, Deshaun Watson somehow, some way, had nothing to do with it. That these women came over and uh, they wanted a little bit more than to give Deshaun Watson a massage, and that they wanted to have sex with them. And Deshaun Watson was like, "Okay, you want to have sex? Let's go ahead and have sex." So. This was a situation where this was a consensual and no big deal. And I get these women, I guess, are going to be perceived as being money huggery and, 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 um, you know, shady and, and, and these type of things. And because of the profession that they do, which is massage therapy or having the title of a massage therapist, I guess he's going to try to argue that it makes it a little bit easier for these women to elicit these type of uh, demands in terms of trying to uh, extort some money or publicity or whatever out of Deshaun Watson. The NFL had not decided, still not decided, on how much or any punishment Watson will get after they finish with their own investigation into the accusations. accusations and Watson signed a five-year, $230 million fully guaranteed contract to play quarterback for the Cleveland Browns this upcoming season. So, again, it goes back to the number 66 different women in 17 months. I mean, you could almost say that this guy was a sexual predator in some instances, in some definitions. It's not clear when he began booking or looking to get so many different women to give him massages. Again, his lawyer, Rusty Harden, has said his client needed to book appointments uh, when the coronavirus pandemic began, or the way that, uh, you know, you use so many uh, different massage therapists, is basically it all started when the um, coronavirus and the pandemic came down and everything was shut down. So because of that, I don't know, man. Does that make any sense to you? That somehow, some way that um, Watson began working with numerous women um uh, during the pandemic, because doggone it, because of the pandemic, massage therapists were not readily available or the ones that he wanted weren't readily available or because of that, he just had to go searching and looking because of the pandemic having some type of uh, impact on how many women could be working or the different women or the different massage therapists that could be working. Wouldn't it be the other way around? If you're going to have a pandemic where everybody was shutting down, wouldn't that mean because people wouldn't go out, people wouldn't engage with other people because they were afraid of getting the coronavirus because of that, that there were less opportunities for Deshaun Watson to go ahead and get a massage therapist that if he got one or maybe two or let's just go awkward and say three that were able to go ahead and give him massages for the or during the pandemic that you know he would be considered himself very lucky if that's the case I, I don't understand the I don't understand the connection because of the coronavirus that Deshaun Watson had to call in 66 different women to give him a, a massage and Watson began doing this uh, predatory type of, uh, of uh, deal before 
that the pandemic went down. So this wasn't something where he had one or two and then the pandemic hit and then all of a sudden he had to go ahead and just go after one, after the other, after the other because the pandemic uh, dictated that he do something like that. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't understand that one. One of the women who spoke on the condition of anonymity to protect her privacy said in an interview she began by working on Watson's back when ma- the massage first started. Then when he flipped over, she said that he demanded or his demeanor and voice changed and he began aggressively dictating where he wanted her to touch him. In the first session, she said that she got into the happy that he got into the happy baby yoga pose. I took Bikram yoga a little while ago. I don't ever remember getting into a happy baby yoga pose. I don't know what that is. It's a situation here on his back with his feet in his hands and asked her to massage between his tentacles and his anus. What in God? She laughed it off. She laughed off the request, but said he grabbed her wrist and put her hand there between his tentacles and his anus. Somehow, some that's going to give you some type of sexual jolt. That's going to get you off by putting someone's hand or putting a, having a, a female put their hands between your testicles in your ass the woman said or the woman said Watson twice initiated sexual intercourse or, or intimated sexual intercourse once by pulling down the scrubs she was wearing she and Watson knew each other from around town and were on friendly terms and she admitted she let him proceed with these sexual acts Quote, I just didn't know how to tell him no, she said. Isn't that some type of, couldn't that be construed as rape? She, uh, she, she and Watson knew each other from around town and they were on friendly terms. She admitted that she let him proceed with the sexual acts. I just didn't know how to tell him no. I mean, she didn't say no. So in essence, she didn't say no, but... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that could be uh, interpreted as rape or not, but that's just that's just wild, and that's just nutty, and that's just creepy, and that's just sick, and that's just disgusting, and that's just wrong on so many different levels. So let me tell you what this case is going to bring to the table in real life and reality when we take a look at this moving forward. Now, this is a... This is going to be pretty interesting moving forward. This is Sean Watson case. Now, Deshaun Watson isn't Tom Brady. Deshaun Watson isn't Peyton Manning. Deshaun Watson isn't LeBron James. Deshaun Watson isn't a a, a bigger known star amongst maybe non-football fans or maybe non-sports fans. I mean, you're speaking about, you know, athletes like Tom Brady and and LeBron and, and um, uh, Peyton Manning and such. I mean, these guys are crossover brand name superstars who've been doing this for a while. Um, Deshaun Watson is relatively young in his career, and I'm quite sure a, a, a folks in certain regions in the country who follow the sport of football at the high school, college, and pro level know of Deshaun Watson. But just in terms of being that guy who can have the same type of impact of the three uh, athletes that I just mentioned, and maybe others in terms of their uh, notoriety, in terms of their uh, publicity, that Sean Watson is not in that boat. But uh, this is still a situation where Deshaun can still have an, an important uh, impact on really what goes down and really take a look 
in terms of, uh, you know, where we're going as a society, what we're doing as a society, where we are as a society in, in, in different situations concerning this, concerning this Deshaun Watson case. We can bring up privilege. We can bring up gender. We can bring up race. We can bring up the criminal justice system. We can, we can, we can bring up a, lo- a whole lot of things when it comes to uh, this uh, case study with Deshaun Watson being accused by so many women of these uh, sexual misdeeds and also uh, with some of the other facts and information that's coming out as uh, we get, I don't know if we're going to get, cl- I don't know if we're close to the finish line. I don't know exactly where we are uh, with this whole deal. And we can also take a look in terms of when we're taking a look at all of this stuff that's going down with Sean Watson and his accusers and stuff. We can also take a look at ourselves as a society and, and what we're all about and, and, and um, what we're uh, willing to tolerate and what we're willing to put up with. The power, when you're speaking about case study, bringing it to life, equating it with reality, equating it to real life, the power and privilege, as always, as uh, of being a celebrity, as one piece of shit who unfortunately and unbelievably became the president of this dumbass country in name only, said, when you're a celebrity, you can get away with anything, even sexual assault. And stupid motherfuckers still voted for him. Go figure. But in a situation where you can bring it back now to the Deshaun Watson case, the power and privilege of being a celebrity, having the resources and the avenue to shape the narrative in a way that will improve your chances of winning the case if someone, if you have raped somebody, if you have sexually assaulted somebody. True, true, true. It goes back to, again, the criminal justice system where... You know, there is a disparage. There is some racism. There is some misogyny. There is some uh, class uh, disrespect in, um, in, uh, in, in situations like that when it comes to our criminal justice system. And yes, when it comes to discrimination in our criminal justice system, the African-American or the black man, shall we say, or the black person in this country always seems to be getting the short end of the stick on, stick on many, many different occasions. But it's been proven by such people as Floyd Mayweather and others, athletes and other celebrities, most the biggest one being O.J. Simpson, that in the court, in the judicial system, it ain't about black, it ain't about white, it ain't about Hispanic, it ain't about Asian, it ain't about Muslim, it ain't about Christian, it ain't about evangelical, it ain't about gay, it ain't about straight, it ain't about any of those things. The determining factor on what your justice will be will be not the color of black or white or Asian or anything like that. I never knew Asian with the color, but you get my drift. It's all about the color green. It's all about money, baby. Money is going to determine your chances in our judicial system. And money and privilege and celebrity is going to also play an impact and play a role on how you are perceived as being innocent or guilty in the court of public opinion, and even if you are in a court of public opinion um, uh, thought and viewed of as being guilty, the attitude or the forgiveness or the let it uh, flow off your back or the excuse-making that you have is going to be determined not by the color of your skin more than how much green you have in your pocket. Rich, famous black men. Rich, Famous black men in this country have a much greater chance of succeeding in court 
than a middle-class, low-income person, regardless of race, creed, or color. Hey, man, I mean, my community, and yes, there has been decades, centuries, ever since this country began over 300 years ago of discrimination and, and, um, and, and those type of things. Racism, discrimination, all of those things ring true, and all of those things ring true today. And they will be ringing true tomorrow. When it comes to the black man, when it comes to how we are perceived, how we are, um, how we are, uh, uh, you know, regarded in this country of ours. But man, if Deshaun Watson was a regular citizen right now, come on, man, that man would be in jail. If Deshaun Watson was a black man right now who was a substitute teacher, or Deshaun Watson right now was a regular citizen who was a mailman, if Deshaun Watson right now was a regular citizen who was, uh, just your regular guy, he would be in jail right now. And we would be saying, put this man in jail right now if we found out some of the particulars and some of the details that went into what these women were accusing him of. If this, if this was a case that was, let's say, for instance, I don't know, instead of Deshaun Watson, football player, multi-multi-millionaire, public figure, beloved by millions, in certain regions of the country, great football player in a sport that we love, uh, the American sport, which is the uh, NFL, which is the National Football League. If Deshaun Watson wasn't that guy. If Deshaun Watson wasn't a, wasn't a top five player in the NFL as far as the quarterback is concerned. If Deshaun Watson wasn't any of those things. If Deshaun Watson was some guy instead of Deshaun Watson. If Dan Watson, David Wilson, Sean Sean, S-E-A-N, that's S, not S-H-A-U-N. Sean Wilkins, white man, evangelical, father of three, husband of 14 years, household income of around $92,000, living in a predominantly white community. He would either be in jail right now, or he would be looking at jail time, or he would be in jail right now. If this was the same situation. Right now, Deshaun Watson just got himself a five-year, two $130 million contract by the Cleveland Browns guaranteed to play football. If this was a white man in a lower to middle class neighborhood, there would be no chance. There would be zero chance that this man would be having the same amount of opportunities as Deshaun Watson. If it was a poor white trailer park trash person, he would have no chance, zero chance. So for the criminal justice system, regardless of race, and yet there is discrimination and there is racism within the criminal justice system. But ask OJ, ask Floyd, and now ask Deshaun Watson, even though this has still not come to a uh, conclusion yet, that if you're rich and if you're famous and if you're well-known and if you're a well-known athlete or actor or singer or whatever, then, uh, you know, you, uh, you got yourself a pretty good chance in a situation like this. So this is also when we're speaking about, you know, when we're taking a look at this case study and we're taking a look about other things, this is an important step for the rights and respect of women. Because I'm telling you right now, if this was a regular citizen committing these acts on women, of what society deem as a more respectable uh, employment career uh, choice from these women, justice would be a lot different. And what I mean is that, you know, we, 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 we equate women of a certain age, of a certain attractive level, in a, in a certain career, and we when we mix them all together, and then somehow, someway, we have these outdated, ignorant stereotypes that kind of label them to kind of diminish 
or decrease the validity and the respect of what they're coming forward with in terms of what these rich, successful, well-known, popular men did to them. So this, this is a big deal. When you're speaking about a massage therapist, a female who is a massage therapist who's relatively attractive, someone of, uh, in, in, someone of an early age in terms of starting off their professional career, somewhere around the age of, I don't know, what, 22, 25, 27, 31, somewhere around there, whereas a female, your looks are at their, at, at their prime. You know, as far as attractiveness-wise, it's the same as men. The women, for the most part, as dictated by the uh, by, by by this society, is you're probably at your peak. You're probably at your best in between the ages of uh, 23 and 32, somewhere around there. And then you know, it's a situation where we start kind of deviating and going back to the 18 to 25 to 27 to 30, 31 year olds. So in between that age of 23 and 32, by what society has deemed the most attractive stages of your life for both men and women if you're doing something as being a massage therapist or a stripper or something like that and you're relatively attractive well then in a situation like this your words and your actions and your accusations and those type of things are are not as pliable to getting the person who did these things to you to stand justice for what they did now it's a big difference if this was a white sorority sister, college-age girl, compared to a stripper or a massage therapist. Now, all of a sudden, if we're speaking about all of a sudden now, if we're speaking about a sorority girl who had this done to her. If we're speaking about a teacher who had this done to her. If we're speaking about a nurse who had this done to her. If we're speaking about one of those type of professions, which for decades and sometimes centuries have been equated as what women would be able to do. Because now we're, we're still trying to um, get our head wrapped around the fact that women can uh, do what we're speaking about. Uh, the majority of uh, jobs in this country, CEOs and such, are going into the armed forces and such that women can do just as good a job as men. And a lot of times even do a better job than men when we're speaking about those type of jobs that have been traditionally been given to men or been traditionally thought of of a male type of job women now are coming and breaking that door down and showing that they're not just only as good as men but in a lot of times better than men so we're speaking about again if one of those type of situations happen well then the sean watson would be in a lot different trouble would be in a lot bigger trouble than him going up against a women going up against uh the 66 women or the women that have sued him or who are massage therapists strippers hookers streetwalkers, women of the night, those type of things, you know, they can, their, their, um, their character can easily be besmirched in terms of, you know, you know, these are just some hungry, grubbing women. These whores just want this. I mean, we all know about massage therapists. We all know about happy endings. In fact, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was, if Deshaun Watson said, Hey, look, man, you know, I mean, I've been getting massages for a long time and hey, you know what? The happy ending and you know, those, all those type of things. That's kind of like par for the course. I mean, we all know of, we all know of, uh, uh, massage, uh, therapists, or we all know of, uh, of, of, of those type of places where you can get more than the massage. Am I correct? Yeah, just ask the owner of the New England Patriots about that. Oh, by the way, who didn't get jack shit thrown on him in terms of any type of, uh, any type of true justice 
for what he did. When you're Robert Kraft and you're a billionaire, you think you're going to have, you, you, you think that some stripper or you think that some massage therapist is going to bring him down, bring him down, some female who works in the massage parlor, you think that as of this country is right now, you think as of this society is right now, that he's going to be able to be brought down by some 20-something-year-old massage therapist or massage or sort of some female who works as at a massage parlor? I don't think so. So it, it's a situation, again, where we're taking a look when you're taking about this case study in terms of, man, what this country is bringing down and our thoughts and feelings, the fact that, hey, man, yeah, there might be some people who might say, man, this is terrible, this is horrible, I cannot believe that Deshaun Watson got himself a $230 million guaranteed contract from the Cleveland Browns to go ahead and do the thing. But I'm quite sure a lot of other people will kind of set that aside, especially if you're a fan of the Cleveland Browns, especially if you have Deshaun Watson on your fantasy team, especially if you are a guy that bet the over on the futures for the Cleveland Browns. If you uh, pick the Cleveland Browns to put the money on the Cleveland Browns, gamble on the Cleveland Browns to uh, win some games and to make it to the Super Bowl and do some things, if you put down some real coin, if you put down any type of coin, you're more in line to say, ah, eh, you know what, hey, Deshaun Watson, I mean, there was a massage therapist, he didn't rape any of these women, from what we know of, I mean, he went to a massage parlor, we know how these women are, blah, 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 this, that, and the other, and even if he did it, no big deal, he didn't shoot anybody, he didn't kill anybody, he didn't rape anybody, he wasn't a child molester, he wasn't doing any of these things, let's go ahead and let's kind of just kind of forget what he did, and again, all of this stuff for Deshaun Watson can go away even more if he plays well this season. If Deshaun Watson can live up to the hype in terms of being a top elite quarterback in the NFL, and he takes a historical great franchise with a great fan base in Cleveland, Ohio, with the Cleveland Browns, and it leads them to uh, the heights of winning a Super Bowl or winning, being one of the elite teams. And he emerges this season as one of the better quarterbacks in the league, or he's right up there with Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen and Aaron Rodgers and, and those fellows. Then all of the stuff that we're talking about here, the 66 women over 17 months and a female asking a female to place his, place her hands between his testicles and his anus and begging women to give him a blowjob. All of this stuff will be by the wayside, man, if Deshaun Watson can go ahead. There'll be still some people who will be disgusted and um, want to, uh, you know, will will make the decision not to follow the NFL or not to follow the uh, Cleveland Browns or whatever. There'll be people out there like that, but the large majority of folks who are football fans and such, even sports fans and such, will kind of forget this ever happened if Deshaun Watson can go out there and play. So it's also interesting to note, again, as we mentioned before, guilt, innocence, what should be the punishment, how should we feel about Deshaun Watson for a lot of people is based on how well he plays the game of football. If he stinks up the joint, then people are going to have a much more negative attitude on what he has been accused of than if he goes out and he plays well. So that's that's an interesting thing. Can the NFL with this whole situation get it right? Can the NFL with this entire situation get it right? Will Commissioner Roger Goodell appease the majority of the Cleveland Browns fan base, the national advertisers, and other business partners, or do the right thing and hand down a lengthy suspension for this? I don't know what's going to be happening, man. When you take a look at the longest suspensions in the league history, you have Ray Carruth, 
who killed his girlfriend, who's a piece of shit, who has spent 18 years in prison before finally getting out. He was suspended indefinitely for that in 1999. Michael Vick was given an indefinite ban in 2007. He missed the entire 2007 and 2008 season before being reinstated and joining the Philadelphia Eagles. He was suspended and served time in prison for his involvement in a dogfighting ring. Plastico Burris was suspended for two years in 2009. Uh, because that's the length that he served as far as being in prison or jail, missing the 2009 and 2010 season because of uh, a like what he had his gun accidentally go off at a nightclub or something like that. And I guess in New York City at the time, that was against the law. Other players who had been suspended for a year: Adam Pacman Jones, uh, Ricky Williams, Paul Horning, Alex Karras, Dante Stallworth. Other players, Tom Brady received four games in 2016. Remember for Deflate Gate, Ben Roethlisberger received six games prior to some of the stuff, uh, you know, uh, similar to some of the stuff that um, Deshaun Watson is being accused of. Maybe not to the degree, not to the levels of Deshaun Watson, but Ben Roethlisberger was given a six-game suspension in 2010 because um, some of the stuff that he did, some inappropriate sexual conduct that he had with a girl down in Georgia at a uh, at a bar back in back in those days. So, look, man, I don't, I'm not saying that that Deshaun Watson, when everything is all said and done, needs to be given a lifetime ban. I'm not saying that Deshaun Watson needs to be suspended for a year, especially when you uh, have the situation where he didn't play last season. So, yeah, he got paid, but he didn't play last season. So, you know, we would be speaking about two years. I wouldn't give him that, but man, I would give him at least I don't know six to eight games or something like that without pay. I mean something that I mean you know where there's smoke there's fire, and he's just sitting up there talking about I haven't done anything, I haven't done anything. I mean, wouldn't his lawyer just say, "Hey, look, man, you know those women just, uh, you know those women just engaged in consensual sex, or you know, hey, you know what, you asked them to do this, they say yes, you tipped them well, and then they moved on, and now they're trying to extort you. Do something." I mean, because Rusty Hart, as I mentioned before, I mean, you know, he's a good enough lawyer to uh, put some uh, dirt and put some mud and put some whole lot of uh, nasty and dirty on these women's names. And because of the financials that uh, Deshaun Watson has, I'm quite sure that he can hire enough uh, attorneys or he can hire enough private investigators to look into these girls' past. And, you know, all it takes is a couple. And this is a situation where, man, these Women who are accused of Deshaun Watson, I mean, they are bringing up all kinds of dirty on them and their children and their family and this, that, and the other. Are you sure you want to go through all that bullshit or do you want to just take a nice little chunk of chunk of money and just go away and not say anything? So, you know, it, it, it'll be an interesting look about what's happening with Deshaun Watson and, again, how it equates to uh, the world that we're living in right now. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us going now quickly to the NBA coaching news. The Los Angeles Lakers hiring Darvin Ham, assistant coach for the Milwaukee Bucks and Mike Budenholzer for a while. He was introduced at the Los Angeles Lakers' new head coach this past uh, Monday with point guard Russell Westbrook standing off to the side and a public show of support for the hiring. Other Lakers in attendance for the news conference included such luminaries and foundational pieces as Austin Reeves, Stanley Johnson, and Wayne Gabriel. Two players who weren't there, LeBron and AD. Now they have expressed happiness and joy about uh, the hiring of Darvin Ham, so 
don't read into that. Ham said that he was providing, he said, providing consistent coaching to Los Angeles' emerging talent and big three alike in Westbrook, LeBron James, and Anthony Davis will be a key to taking command of the locker room. I, I need to ask Darvin to hand something. What emerging talent are we talking about? The Los Angeles Lakers moving forward, consistent coaching to Los Angeles' emerging talent. They don't have any emerging talent there, Coach. What are you speaking about? Last offseason, the Lakers traded all their emerging, uh, emerging talent for Russell Westbrook, hoping that he could be the third star along with uh, James and Davis and filled up the rest of the roster with uh, minimum salary veterans and uh, people on, and you know, guys on minimum wage. So you're speaking about a roster that had at one time Carmelo Anthony, John Rondo, Kent Bazemore, Avery Bradley, DeAndre Jordan, Trevor Arizo, Wayne Ellington, Dwight Howard. Are, are those the emerging talents that we're speaking about? All 30-something-year-olds, all past, what, the age of 35 or somewhere around the 35 age range? Is that what we're speaking about, Coach, when you're speaking about emerging talent? What young players are you speaking about, Coach? What emerging talent are you speaking about? Taylor Horton Tucker? Kendrick Dunn, who didn't play at all last season because of injury? Stanley Johnson? Austin Reeves? These are the emerging talent young players that you're going to build the team around? To do what? Try to get into the play-in game if LeBron and AD can carry them enough, long enough without getting injured? Malik Monk, who might have fell under the emerging talent or young talent, he outplayed his contract this season and that's a free agent this summer. I don't think the Lakers are going to have enough to pay him the market value. I don't think that Malik Monk, who took a home count, uh, you know, who had a who took a discount to play last season. I don't think he's going to do that for two years in a row, depending upon what his contract entails. I don't think he's going to be spending the next two to three to four years making below market value. So, you know, I don't know what emerging talent that Darvin Ham is talking about. Then they were speaking about, you know, what you're going to do about Russell Westbrook, who, oh, by the way, makes $47.1 million, which is the highest salary in the association last season averaging 18.7 assists, 7 rebounds, but has a field goal percentage of somewhere around 40% on jumpers. And that was the second worst among players who attempted 300 shots. Only Julius Randle was first. Um, and it's interesting. <laughs> this is what uh, Darvin Ham had to say about Russell Westbrook. Uh, don't get it messed up. Russell Westbrook is one of the best players our league has ever seen, and there's still a ton left in the tank. I don't know why people tend to write him off. He also said about Russell Westbrook, Russ and I had some really, really great one-on-one -on -one combos, man, and the biggest word I think that came across out of that, those discussions, was sacrifice. I'm going to expect him to be the same tenacious, high-energy player that he's been all his entire career. A lot of that now may have him without the ball in his hand. Most of it now may have to be on the defensive end. But again, we have to sacrifice. There is, there's no achieving anything without all parties sharing the load, sacrificing instead of one-on-one. Uh-huh. So Russell Westbrook, who has never done anything in terms of sacrificing... On one hand, you say that he's one of the best players our league has ever, ever seen, and there's still a ton left in the tank, and I don't know why people try to write him off. 
And then he's talking about, well, but he also needs to sacrifice. So for me, if I'm Russell Westbrook, because I'm still one of the best players the league has ever seen, and I still have a ton left in the tank, and if I'm Russell Westbrook, oh, by the way, I think I agree with Darvin Ham on that assessment, then what am I sacrificing? Are, 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 am I sacrificing playing my game that got me to the point where I'm one of the best players our league has ever seen? How is that making the team better if I'm going to have to sacrifice the attributes that made me one of the best players the league has ever seen and still have a lot of that left in the tank. What are you asking me to sacrifice, coach? You're asking me to play defense? I haven't played defense in the longest. I haven't played disciplined defense in the longest. What are you talking about? Are you are you asking me to this summer go ahead and get myself a 19 to 25 foot jump shot? Are you asking me to do that? Because I haven't been able to do that either. And by all likelihood, if you're telling me that I'm still one of the best players the league has ever seen and still have a ton left in the tank, why should I go out and uh, expand on my game that way? I'm one of the best players the league have ever seen. I still have a ton left in the tank. What, what, what do you want me to change? What do you want me to get better at? I still think that I'm an acceptable three-point shooter, even though I'm not. I still think that I'm a decent enough ju- jump shooter, even though I'm not. And I bring everything else to the table. I bring everything else to the team. So, again, coach, on one hand, if you're telling me that I'm still one of the best players the league has ever seen and I still have a ton left in the tank, but you want me to sacrifice, what do you want me to sacrifice? Woo! I think by Christmas this upcoming year that uh, Darvin Ham is going to regret making some of those statements. But Russell Westbrook was in the audience. What, what, what do you expect the man to say? So... I don't know, man. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN reported on why the Lakers hired Darvin Ham. He was a Lakers experience, uh, played a role in his hiring. The team was also sold on Ham's stature and toughness, his history of coaching star players, and his championship pedigree as an assistant and player. We'll see how it works. I, I don't know exactly how the Lakers are going to get better. I mean, even if a miracle happens and Anthony Davis and LeBron James play 82 games, which because of, you know, DMPs, uh, uh, because of uh, load management, I don't think that's going to happen. But if the um, the duo of Anthony Davis and LeBron James can stay healthy, I, I, I don't know what else the Lakers are going to put around them to make them worthy championship contenders in any situation for a division, for a conference, let alone a, a title, the NBA title. I don't, I don't, there, there, there's no moves out there to make. The Lakers are so strapped, especially if they bring back Russell Westbrook. So you're bringing back Russell Westbrook, LeBron James, and Anthony Davis, and you want to build around those three guys with who? With what? How? What players out there? What, Taylor Horton Tucker, Kendrick Nunn? I mean, who's out there? You're not getting Jeremy Grant. You're not getting Miles Bridges. You're not getting any of those guys. You're not trading Westbrook for anybody of value, and that would probably be for a couple of people because if you trade Russell Westbrook, whether it be to Charlotte, whether it be to, I don't know, wherever, whoever else, you're, you're not going to get anybody back that I think is going to equate or be able to compete with an emerging Dallas Mavericks team, with a Denver Nuggets team that's going to be getting – uh, Michael Porter Jr. back and Jamal Murray to go with the two-time rating MVP, Nikola Jokic. Whatever happened in Phoenix, however that went down, now there's reports that uh, 
there were some players out there that had COVID during that time. But I don't think even, you know, a situation, we don't know what the situation is with DeAndre Ayton, but regardless, Los Angeles next year is not going to be better than Phoenix. They're not going to be better than uh, Golden State. They're not going to be better than Memphis. They're not going to be better than any of these guys, regardless of again what they do. I don't. I don't. It doesn't matter. So I don't. I I don't know exactly where we're going to be heading with this, but um, you know, I mean, good luck to Darvin Ham. I I'm glad you got the opportunity, but you got your work cut out for you, Coach Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host. Wendell Wall is so glad that you could be with us. Let me end with this. Uh, Utah Jazz looking for a new coach. Quinn Snyder looking for a new team to coach. Uh, my man Quinn Snyder cited the team need for a new voice as the major factor in his decision, leaving after eight seasons. According to ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski, my man, the decision to part ways with the Jazz was solely Snyder's. As the organization wanted him to remain in his position, they even offered him a contract extension, which he turned down. Interesting. I don't know if it was a situation where I don't know what the situation is. I don't know the man who hired him, Dennis Lindsay, is no longer there at the uh, person in charge. That's Danny Ainge. Danny Ainge said that uh, he did everything that he could to uh, get Snyder to um, stay the course and a contract extension. I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know how much trust there was when you're bringing someone new, um, especially when you're also speaking about not only. Was Quinn Snyder the coach when he was first hired by the GM, who's no longer there? It was also a, um, it was also the owner situation. The owner situation has changed, and now you have Ryan Smith in that position as owning the team. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, maybe it's a situation where Quinn just got tired of living in the uh, living in Salt Lake City. I don't know. But uh, following Quinn's decision, All Star guard Donovan Mitchell is feeling unsettled and unnerved while pondering the team's future without the only coach Mitchell has ever played for professionally. And according to Wojnarowski, Mitchell signed a contract extension with Utah in 2020, at least in part because of Snyder's presence on the sidelines. So it's right now where uh, Mitchell is kind of figuring out what they need to do. I don't know if Ryan Smith and... I don't know if Ryan Smith and Dwayne Wade are going to be flying back to uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, where... Mitchell hangs out in the offseason where he has his house out there in the offseason, try to get him to come back or see what we can do or this, that, and the other. But uh, it'll, it'll be interesting. I think that um, this season, Mitchell kind of took a step back in being that guy where you have to uh, bend over backwards and, and and be at his whim, even in a market like Utah, which is not going to attract any type of high-profile free agents. But uh, this is a situation where Donovan Mitchell didn't play well enough, especially in the playoffs, to garner that type of uh, respect. I mean, if it's a situation now where if Donovan Mitchell is going to be traded, I mean, what what is going to be the trade market for him? What can you get for him? So according to Bleacher Report, Jake Fisher, the Jazz has thus far not entertained rival teams' overture to steal away all uh, Donovan Mitchell, but reportedly have engaged multiple teams about three-time Defensive Player of the Year, Rudy Gobert. So you have the Chicago Bulls interested. You have the Toronto Raptors, the Atlanta Hawks, the Dallas Mavericks. Atlanta is interesting and intriguing because Atlanta is a little bit like um, Utah in terms of in Utah, Gobert was asked by the organization basically to save the team uh, because of their porous defenders. 
When you're speaking about Mike Connolly, when you're speaking about Joe Inglis, when you're speaking about Donovan Mitchell, when you're speaking about all of those guys, Royce O'Neal, who was considered a defensive guy, was not really what you would call an elite defensive player. So basically, it was Gobert out there trying to uh, trying to uh, correct all of the mistakes that the Utah Jazz had, and just having the just not having the personnel to keep the opposing players in front of the uh, in front of them. So he would go to a team like the Atlanta Hawks, who's kind of like similar in the Utah Jazz to where they don't have anybody who can guard anybody either. And their best player, supposedly Trey Young, I mean, he definitely can't guard anybody. Just like in Utah, Donovan Mitchell now has gotten to the point where he's a poor defender. So you have DeAndre Hunter in Atlanta to help him out. But, man, it would kind of be like the same situation in Atlanta than it would be in Utah, where Rudy Gobert would be trying to cover for the mistakes and for the ineffectiveness of a lot of uh, defenders for the Atlanta Hawks. So the Raptors, long, lean team, that would be pretty good. And for the Mavericks, I mean, I don't know what having Rudy Gobert on a team where, you know, if you're playing with Luka Dantich, where, you know, this is a guy where I think it would be just best to surround him with shooters. I mean, wasn't it the situation where one of the reasons why they traded Christoph Porzingis was because of his ability to clog the middle and not give the space and not get the freedom needed for Dantich to do a thing and for other perimeter players to work around that? What would be what would bringing in Rudy Gobert mean for all of that is concerned? So it'll be interesting moving forward, the buzz once the NBA season's over and we the draft starts and all those type of things. It'll be it'll be interesting, it'll be all right. All right, I'm out of here. Thank you very much for listening to my podcast, Wendell's World of Sports. As always, especially in these times, I always ask, I always pray, I always give my speech in terms of, look, man, let's see what we can do, my generation, the generation before and after, to where it is too late for us to live in a society where people are judged based on their moral character and based on their hearts and based on the goodness of the person. We're too ignorant, we're too selfish, we're too ingrained in our stereotypes and our ignorance to really make the move and make the changes that uh, are going to really allow peace and love and unity to prosper too late for my generation, generation before and after. So what we can do, hopefully, hopefully, is find some folks of a different race, of a different gender, different political background, different religions, all those type of things, and get to know these people, kind of open our eyes a little bit, and then we can transfer that down to the younger generation so they can continue to move this country, to move the society, to move this world in a place where people are truly judged just based on who they are as human beings, not based on anything else. Too late for my generation, too late for your generation, but man, let's see for the school kids when they go to school in the year 2042, in the year 2052, maybe hell, in the year 2037, maybe when I'm still alive, that some of these ignorant stereotypes, some of these ignorant thoughts that we have regarding people of color, regarding people of different religions, regarding people from different parts of the world, regarding people of a different uh, ethnic background, people who might uh, love the same sex that they are. Maybe some of these ignorant stereotypes and maybe these ignorance thoughts and feelings that we have toward those type of peoples, Asians, Hispanics, Blacks, uh, 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 Jews, um, uh, you know, those, those, those types, Muslims, 
maybe we can uh, teach the younger generation that, hey, man, it doesn't matter what religion, it doesn't matter what side of the tracks, it doesn't matter what side of the globe, it doesn't matter uh, what your financial background is all about, it doesn't matter any of the things. If you're a good person and you're, give, and you're receiving love and respect and unity from those people, man, everything else falls by the wayside. Race, religion, all that kind of nonsense, all that bullshit falls by the wayside, man. And you love the person who's going to love you back with, you know, with harmony and with respect. That's what it's all about. All right. Wendell's World of Sports, the queen of soul, the greatest of them all, man. All that, all that, all that good stuff. Wendell's World of Sports, I say peace. Get me out of here with some music. Music. 